This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Okay, well, thank you very much for the invitation. And um, I know that you've uh, uh, all been going through a lot, as have all of us, in, in getting ourselves to this point. And hopefully we can spend an enjoyable period of time together uh, delving a little bit more deeply into an area that I think is fascinating and uh, that I think is rapidly becoming uh, part of the norm with which um, we think about and conceptualize nutrition as it affects us, our health, and our uh, predisposition for diseases chronically uh, as we age. And um, so as a lead-in, I just want to make the point that uh, in particular with respect to cardiometabolic health, which is my area of expertise and the area in which we think really most deeply about nutrition, uh, that human beings are both genetically and functionally quite heterogeneous. And so dietary strategies, medical strategies for disease management, and even behavioral recommendations for exercise um, and healthy living have traditionally been a one-size-fits-all type of approach uh, with respect to recommendations. But I think we are really realizing now that we're entering an era where data and uh, the types of depths to which those data allow us to go in terms of understanding ourselves will allow us to make more precise recommendations, both in terms of diet as well as um, in terms of a whole host of other potential interventions we might be able to make on our behalf to improve our cardiometabolic health risk. Um, and I, I just want to um, sort of uh, highlight graphically and, and, and in terms of an example how clear-cut this idea that cardiometabolic risk really has and always been a, uh, an interaction between our genotype and the, um, uh, the biological characteristics that go along with our genome and the lifestyles that we live, so the classic gene times environment interaction. And there's no better example um, uh, to make the case that cardiometabolic disease risk works this way than the example of Pima Indians. And so Pima are native peoples who live um, in the interior portion of California, the very southern tier of Arizona, as well as an enriched population in the southern aspect of New Mexico. But notably, there are also Pima who live in the adjacent areas to all those three states on the Mexican side of the border. And in Mexico, people with Pima um, uh, genotypes uh, tend to be lean, uh, oftentimes um, uh, traditionally existing um, in a subsistence manner, um, doing small farm work, um, and um, have very low rates of diseases that we normally associate with obesity. For example, diabetes rates among Pima living in Mexico is on the order of about 5% um, in most studies. On the other hand, on the American side of the border, Pima have a very different socioeconomic uh, uh, status, uh, very different resultant lifestyle factors, including most notably diet and quite sedentary uh, uh, lifestyles because uh, of the lack of educational attainment, language barriers, and a whole host of other um, social determinants of health. Individuals who are Pima engage in, um, in work uh, that tends to uh, be promoting of being quite sedentary. Um, and all of those things conspired with a particular genotype, 
lead Pima in the United States to be relatively obese. In fact, in some segments of the population, quite obese. And in the context of that obesity, U.S. Uh, uh, Pima people have upwards of 50% rates of type 2 diabetes, far greater than their um, genetically relatively identical um, uh, family members in many cases on the Mexican side of the border. And so the only difference that Pima experience that leads to this incredible increase in, in diabetes rates is just environmental. Um, and so uh, the genotype can, in isolation, be viewed as neither protective nor risk-inducing. The ability of one's genotype to confer or protect against disease risk really has everything to do with one's environment. And today we're really going to be talking about those aspects of the environment that dovetail with obesity, and we're going to be focusing most notably on the diet in that regard. But just um, to note that even if we look more broadly, uh, the impact of obesity, which many of you may, may realize is a well-known risk factor for diabetes, actually confers risk in a quite heterogeneous manner. Um, what I mean by that is that even though people with obesity, generally speaking, have increased risk for diabetes, uh, that risk isn't, isn't uh, borne out equally in all segments of the population. Indeed, um, there are up to 15% of individuals who are not characterized as obese um, will be at high risk for and go on to get diabetes, whereas 70% of people who are obese will never go on to get diabetes. And so we've understood that there are metabolically unhealthy as well as metabolically healthy forms of obesity. And because obesity itself is becoming so common in the population, we actually see this diversity um, uh, and this um, uh, heterogeny in the obese phenotype play out. So some individuals are highly cardiovascularly fit. They have no markers of disease risk um, in terms of lipid profiles, inflammatory markers, um, or um, imaging-related markers looking at their coronary arteries, for example, um, whereas other individuals who are obese, even much less so, have all of these uh, uh, proximal indicators of disease risk. And one of the really key cutting-edge areas is to determine exactly what it is that creates protective factors in the context of obesity for some people, but disease-promoting um, uh, risk uh, in the context of uh, obesity for others. And um, I'll give the example another way. There are individuals who develop obesity uh, by virtue of, of having mutations in a single gene. We, we call this so-called monogenic obesity, and thankfully it contributes to a very, very small percentage of overall obesity. Um, and so these very rare cases in which a person inherits a gene de defect in, in only one gene that, that leads them to develop obesity rapidly and progressively um, uh, over their lifetime um, uh, are known, and, and we have a lot of information about these rare individuals. And so um, what I'm showing here is an example of two individuals that have a mutation in a gene in the brain that governs um, the breaks on appetite and uh, uh, the um, trigger that, that, that initiates hunger. Um, and so um, the two colored uh, uh, lines represent growth curves for those two kids born with, with the same uh, mutation in that gene in the brain called POMC. And you can see those curves ascending at a far greater rate than the general uh, population of age-matched kids. And you, you, many of you who have been parents may have seen 
your kids' growth curves, and you can see that these kids, um, these two kids, went above the 90th percentile, then the 95th percentile, then the 99th percentile, very, very early in life. And by the time um, they reached 18 and beyond, they were far above uh, anybody else um, of their age in terms of um, uh, their level of obesity. However, neither of these two individuals. Uh, had diabetes. Not only that, but their hemoglobin A1C exam, as you can see in the table next to the graph, um, actually reveals that their glucose control is quite normal. In fact, even healthy. Um, if, if, if you just looked at the, um, the lipid parameters and the, uh, the hemoglobin A1C data uh, for these individuals without knowing that they were obese, you would think that they were cardiometabolically quite healthy, maybe even athletic. Um, and so you can see that uh, from these um, data, it's clear that obesity by itself is not a direct link uh, to developing diseases that we normally associate with obesity when we think of the entire population. And so um, I make this uh, a point just to say that uh, there's a lot of heterogeneity. And because of that heterogeneity, we need more precise approaches to identify individuals at risk and, and precise approaches um, to intervene so that we can minimize the number of individuals who do not respond um, to the efforts that we make on their behalf to improve their health. And um, on the entirely other end of the spectrum, Asian individuals, both South Asian as well as um, several East Asian subgroups, and also uh, certain individuals in Middle Eastern countries tend to develop type 2 diabetes at a much lower BMI uh, than the worldwide average and certainly the average in the United States. And, and the number of individuals in those genetic uh, uh, subgroups and ethnic um, uh, segments of the population in the United States has risen rapidly enough that in many states, we've adopted something called Screen at 23, where in the, at least in the public health setting, uh, we can now get diabetes screening um, without copay on behalf of the patient of, uh, uh, for individuals who have a BMI of 23 or above, which in the general population isn't even categorized as overweight, much less obese. On the other hand, for Caucasian individuals, the public health system in many states will not cover that kind of screening um, on, the way, on the basis of weight alone un until somebody ascends to a BMI above 30. And so here's an example of precision medicine, right? We're, we're making different cutoffs, thresholds, and guidelines for screening and potential intervention for one subgroup differently than we are for another subgroup because we understand a little bit about uh, distinct aspects of risk from one group to another. Here it's relatively crude because we're making the distinction based specifically only on ethnicity without a deeper understanding of genotype-specific factors that may fuel that risk. But in the near future and certainly over the next 10 to 20 years, that will change and we'll be able to get even more refined uh, indicators of risk that might be manifest at the individual level as opposed to the um, uh, uh, level across an entire ethnic group, for example. And um, when you think about uh, the risk for diabetes in the context of obesity, another thing that we see is um, that uh, people develop something called insulin resistance before they go on to develop type 2 diabetes. And again, we think of obesity as a, as a spurring factor that triggers the development of insulin resistance as an antecedent to uh, type 2 diabetes. And in this graph, I'm showing you the relationship between an index 
of uh, insulin resistance on the y-axis with higher numbers, meaning individuals are more insulin resistant and therefore much more at risk for developing diabetes imminently. Um, And on the x-axis, BMI, or again, an indicator of excess body weight um, with higher numbers indicative of a greater degree of obesity. And in general, the fit of that curve with all the dots that you see representing individuals uh, shows an inverse relationship such that that the individuals um, with the highest uh, uh, BMI um, have the um, greatest amount of um, insulin resistance. The y-axis is an, ins- an index of insulin sensitivity. So the higher the number, the more insulin sensitive. The lower the number, the more insulin resistant. And you can see that the people with the lowest numbers are the more, most obese. But the, the, the rectangle that I've um, placed in the middle of that point is reflective of what we might normally call a lean individual, somebody with a BMI below 25. And you can see in that vertically oriented uh, rectangle that there's a number of individuals with varying degrees of insulin sensitivity versus resistance, all of whom have a relatively similar uh, BMI. So again, you can see that even um, at the level of tissue insulin resistance, the impact of obesity on any given individual can be exceptionally variable. And we have actually created at UCSF a cohort of individuals to study this very thing to get a better idea about uh, precision medicine-related factors at play in, in, in cardiometabolic health. We call this uh, cohort IDEO, or Inflammation, Diabetes, Ethnicity, and Obesity. And one of the things that we do for all the individuals we've enrolled in the IDEO cohort is to use uh, dual energy X-ray absorptiometry, or DEXA, which many of you may be familiar with because we also use that um, to to check bone density uh, in people when we're concerned about osteoporosis. Well, we can also use DEXA to get an analysis of um, lean mass and fat mass and use computer-driven algorithms to understand where in the body certain parts of their total fat is located, inside the belly, around the organs, um, which we call visceral adiposity or visceral fat, um, or in the extremities under the skin, buttocks, thighs, arms, etc., which we call subcutaneous fat. And um, what I show here are individuals of three ethnic groups, roughly similar by BMI, three women, Uh, roughly same age, roughly same BMI. So if we only used body mass index as an indicator of uh, diabetes risk, these three women would be viewed as having roughly the same diabetes risk. However, using DEXA, we can see, for example, that um, compared to the Caucasian woman, the Chinese woman has a much larger percentage of her fat located in the visceral adipose tissue or VAT compartment uh, as a function of her total body fat. And that increased visceral fat content, the fat inside the belly around the organs that creates what we oftentimes in popular parlance call the apple shape, um, is conferring a far greater risk for diabetes for that Chinese woman than uh, the total body fat is conferring for the comparator Caucasian woman, even though by BMI she's just as obese as um, or just as lean as the uh, uh, Chinese woman is. And so we are able to now use imaging to give a better indication of precise uh, body shape-related characteristics that confer diabetes risk. And we can connect those imaging-related parameters to a whole host of blood-derived 
uh, biomarkers to see if we can identify over time very precise and very specific biomarkers that are not only able to predict risk as well as these imaging studies and certainly better than BMI, but that might also be dynamic. So if someone does something to try to improve their risk for diabetes or heart disease, that they may be able to actually track the rise and the fall of these biomarkers because we can validate them versus uh, uh, other other parameters, like in this case, DEXA-based imaging. So um, in, in trying to um, get an even better understanding of this, um, we are um, also able to um, show heterogeneity in terms of the genes themselves that confer risk. And um, the, um, the, the way we normally do this is to look at something um, that we call a genome-wide association study, or GWAS. And um, there have been many GWAS uh, done to look at obesity and the genes that predispose individuals for increased risk for obesity. And um, those um, GWAS studies um, that have been done would indicate that, and all I'm showing here is a, a graphical representation of the types of genes that come out of these GWAS studies when meta-analyzed to look for genes that are most commonly associated with increased risk for obesity. Now we're not talking anymore about people who have a single gene defect, but we're talking about large populations of people uh, where we don't know anything about what genes they may or may not have that are driving their obesity. We just compare obese individuals versus lean individuals. And the, the meta-analyses that have been done to date show clearly that the genes that are associated with obesity encode for proteins that work in the brain. And by that, um, uh, by that definition, obesity, at least the heritable component, the genetic component of obesity, writ large across the large population, is a function of, di- uh, of altered normal functionality in the brain due to a number of different gene defects, each of which produces a very small effect size, but when added up together, produce a large effect on um, hunger, satiety, our desire to comfort eat, and a whole number of other factors that relate to our our, uh, uh, desire to eat more versus less food per day um, over, over a long period of time. And, um, and so, so that big peak of dense um, vertical lines shows how clearly the genes that are associated with obesity are um, uh, concordant with brain function versus function of a number of other comparator tissues in the body. Now, if we compare that to that big tower of, of vertical lines um, about two-thirds of the way towards the right-hand side of the, of the set of, uh, of lines... Um, that you see in this graph shows that if you do the same kind of analysis looking for genetic drivers of insulin resistance, we're not talking about diet, we're not talking about any single gene, we're not talking about rare patients, we're talking about large populations of people looking at insulin resistant people at great imminent risk for diabetes versus people who are metabolically quite healthy by comparison. You can see that the genes that are most proximally associated with that risk are genes that target the function of the fat tissue itself. So where we store the fat in our bodies and how we store the fat in our bodies and how that fat functions has a genetic component um, that drives it 
and alterations in, in the genes that run the function of fat are proximally related to our vulnerability to developing insulin resistance in the context of obesity should we develop obesity. And that, we think, is an indication as to why some people who develop obesity don't have any metabolic uh, uh, complications associated with it, whereas other people who do have all of the metabolic complications associated with it. Okay, so now that we have a little bit of an understanding about the fact that there are indeed genetic drivers that we can assess population-wide that exert small incremental increases or decreases in our overall risk for disease, we can look at diet as an overlay on top of that in order to get deeper understanding. And so now just a, a little bit of history. Um, I, I like to give this example because I think it's, it's just quite um, instructive with respect to how society and um, human biology intersect. And this is the example of Wonder Bread. So uh, bread until the 1920s was minimally processed. Um, we did not have fine milling of grains um, in our society. And so a lot of bread was baked at home. Um, a, a lot of bread was purchased at local markets and not mass produced. And the reason why Wonder Bread came to get its name and what the purpose of, of the science that went into developing Wonder Bread um, was, was that we needed uh, or felt we had the need to insert more nutrients into bread than normally came in bread. Bread was uh, traditionally viewed as being a pretty bland um, uh, food with minimal nutritional um, value. And we felt like during the run-up to World War II and during that time that we need to have stronger kids um, because of um, uh, worldwide pressures um, in the context of um, our views about the war. And so um, scientists worked on uh, ways in which we could we could um, uh, integrate more uh, minerals, vitamins, and nutritional factors into foods like, for example, bread. And um, the only way that you can do that is if you mill the bread excessively, the, the flour excessively, uh, prior to making the bread with it. And that, all, that not only allows you to put in vitamins and minerals uh, into the bread and, and therefore, quote-unquote, enrich it, um, it also allows you to put more preservatives into the bread and, and give it the greater shelf life that we now know a lot of mass-produced, processed uh, grains, cereals, and breads have. And so once we went ahead and did this and reformulated the entire milling infrastructure in the United States to create big um, uh, factory-based mills to, to mass-produce enriched grains for cereals and breads, we never went back. And... Um, and instead, what we did was focus on the other, uh, what we thought at the time was the large nutritional category, and that was fat. We thought we had achieved something healthy in terms of enriching flour to make better breads and cereals, but we felt like the fat was the place where all of the adult health risks came from. And that really came to a head in the 1980s with our, um, with our uh, low-fat, fad dieting and the excessive um, focus on both fat and cholesterol. And so um, the change in dietary recommendations initiated during the very early 80s and late 70s had a great impact. And you can see over time the reduction in the consumption of butter, the reduction in the consumption of lard, the reduction in the consumption of margarine even that went along with um, the uh, focus on an increasingly low-fat diet and the increased consumption um, by comparison of oils 
um, that are more polyunsaturated and and um, vegetable rich, and shortening for ba- for for cooking that was um, based on vegetable fat as opposed to animal fat. And so we thought that we were doing something very healthy um, by by making this massive shift in macronutrient consumption patterns. But of course, um, however, um, what we learned. Um, in the period from the 1980s until even quite recently, that beyond dietary fat, smoking, and sedentary lifestyle, um, there are a number of other factors, both genetic, which we have a much better understanding of now, as well as dietary factors that um, really play into cardiovascular risk. And this um, I show in the context of uh, pictures of Jim Fix, who many of you may remember as being both a running guru and a diet, a low-fat diet aspirant, um, who actually died of heart attack at a relatively young age um, and had tremendous um, uh, blockage of major coronary arteries in the context of of his his, uh, uh, major heart attack, which he subsequently died from. Um, And so, you know, it really brings to light the idea that a very simplistic a viewpoint on nutrition and a very simplistic viewpoint on the, the genes that contribute along with that nutrition to cardiovascular and cardiometabolic risk actually has led to wild swings in, um, in health and disease. And when we thought we were doing things to make people healthier, we were actually playing whack-a-mole and um, uh, uh, creating increased health risks in other areas. And so um, in addition to um, you know, not identifying all risk for heart disease, our dietary recommendations led to an increased consumption of carbohydrates. So if you're not um, uh, eating fat, you've got to eat something for your calories. And the, the something that people tended to consume more of was carbohydrates. Now, we thought at the time that because the carbohydrates were all enriched and had increased vitamins and minerals in them, that we probably weren't doing anything too harmful. But what we didn't realize was that in the context of the mass milling operation that we we had created, we also created um, much more in the way of processed carbohydrates. And those those processed carbohydrates um, have a lot more sugar and fructose um, in particular added to them. And in the context of all of that sugar and carbohydrate consumption, people began to gain weight. And you can see uh, weight gain go up across different age demographics and in association with the increased body weight gain since the 80s until now, there's been an associated uh, uh, increase in the rates of diabetes. And uh, paradoxically, um, even though we didn't know it in the 80s, we now fully realize that type 2 diabetes is actually one of the very biggest, if not the biggest, risk factor for cardiovascular disease events um, on par with smoking, for example. And so people who have diabetes, we now consider as having a cardiovascular disease risk equivalent um, as bad or perhaps even worse in some cases than smoking. And the increased rates of diabetes are actually a function of, at least in part, dietary recommendations we made um, uh, over the prior decades in the context of trying to be more healthy. And here's a good example of um, what that looks like, right? So these are these are branded as being healthy snacks, snack wells, and um, they are healthy specifically because they're low in fat. But of course, they're exceptionally high in um, in uh, refined um, uh, sugar added carbohydrates. And um, this is, I think, become a sort of a poster child for that era of, of misguided nutrition. And so this is just to give you the orientation chemically as to what we're talking about when we think of fructose in particular. Um, it's, it's a disaccharide combination of both glucose and sucrose. 
And unlike glucose, which when we consume it is assimilated through the intestine, enters the bloodstream, and then can be utilized by cells uh, throughout the body in conjunction with insulin, which we make to help process that sugar, sucrose and more importantly fructose, which is liberated from it, must be processed specifically through the through the liver first, and um, as I'll as I'll show you, um, that fact alone leads to a lot of um, uh, disease risk associated with excess fructose consumption. And so here's just an example of what that looks like. So um, when we eat glucose, and that little um, tube-shaped structure in the center of the image is the intestine. Um, the intestine absorbs the glucose, and then it goes immediately into the bloodstream, and it will go to the adipose tissue, the fat, the muscle, um, uh, brain, as well as to organs like the liver. Fructose, on the other hand, when it's absorbed through the intestine, goes first to the liver. And one thing that it does through several transcriptional pathways is to, is to force the liver to make fat. And so fructose leads to fat synthesis in the liver. And excess chronic fructose consumption is well known now to produce fatty liver. And the liver both gets fattier and that fat increases associated with inflammation in the liver. And that inflammation drives insulin resistance in the liver. And that leads the liver to put out glucose. And that's one of the reasons why people's blood sugar tends to creep up over time as they eat foods rich in fructose, namely processed carbohydrates. The other thing that the liver does um, to try to protect itself, itself is to kick out um, uh, uh, excess fat in the form of um, a molecule called, v, uh, a particle called VLDL, which is enriched with, with, um, with fat, which then circulates into the body, deposits in the fat tissue, and makes people uh, gain even more weight. And so there are vi there's a vicious cycle that gets set up when people um, uh, consume too much fructose. And um, you can um, see that um, in these glucose tolerance curves that there's a specific impact of that on um, the pancreas. And so these curves represent the response of an individual to consumption of glucose, in this case on the left-hand side for nine weeks, or a diet rich in fructose um, uh, for nine weeks um, as a comparison. And then what you do um, is you give that individual a, 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 um, a, a dose of, of glucose and look at the rise in insulin. And what you can see that is that people who consume fructose for a long period of time in excess have a much more severe hyperinsulinemic response when they eat anything. Um, and so um, that burden on the pancreas to kick out more insulin with every meal we consume leads to a more rapid demise of pancreatic function. And that is something that then clearly leads to uh, diabetes. And so um, the excess consumption of fructose, I think, really cannot be emphasized enough as a, as a risk we've learned about for cardiometabolic decline in people. Um, and um, this uh, is a, a, a journal uh, cover from gastroenterology from colleagues here at UCSF, um, uh, including um, uh, Rob Lustig, um, Kathy Mulligan, and John Mark Schwartz, um, showing that if you take adolescents and you limit their consumption of fructose, um, specifically by depriving them of sugary beverages and, um, and, and uh, fructose-rich uh, processed foods, um, you can see a, a reduction 
in liver fat, even in the context of 10 days of cessation of the fructose consumption. And so the, the proximal relationship between fructose intake um, and liver fat is actually dynamic. And, and so I just want to put a positive um, spin on all of this as well to say that if you improve your diet with respect to fructose consumption, you can see improvements relatively rapidly, um, even if you already have fatty liver and associated insulin resistance. Um, and even more recently, this article in Diabetes Cares from just a few weeks ago, um, even in the context of whole grains, okay, so many of you may, may, may know that um, we've now made a push towards um, promoting whole grain consumption to minimize the amount of processed, refined, simple carbohydrates that people consume. But even in the context of, um, of whole grain consumption, consuming more finely milled whole grains produces a greater um, uh, impact on um, blood sugar than um, consuming very minimally processed whole grains. And so in these two graphs, I'm just um, outlining um, that, that these individuals um, in this study who, uh, that were being compared were eating um, whole grains that were nutritionally identical the only difference was the extent of milling and the fineness of the flour that was created from that milling process. And that's what the bottom rectangle highlights. They just pass the flour through sieves. And you could see that the more milled flour passed through smaller sieves and the, 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 the minimally processed flour didn't. And, um, and then these other two um, rectangles um, show um, the statistically significant effect that that had on the blood sugar rise with specific meals, both all meals combined and more specifically breakfast, because after all, breakfast tends to traditionally be the meal where we um, usually consume um, uh, carbohydrates in terms of uh, uh, foods that are enriched with flour, cereals and breads, for example. And so the impact on, on blood sugar, we now understand, is quite specific. And the wholeness of the grains can be modulated across a wide range. And that entire range of modification of the foods that we may be having an impact on our cardiometabolic health. Okay, so now we'll, we'll switch gears a little bit and talk about um, calories and dieting. Um, and again, there's heterogeneity and room for precision in this, in this arena. So just to let you know that many studies have been done on the topic, and this is one of the most sort of uh, uh, fundamental ones that people quote, all diets allow one to lose weight. So I can get someone to lose weight if I'm managing their weight loss by following any of a number of weight loss diets. And so here you're comparing um, the zone, which is um, focusing on, on carbohydrates and glycemic index of foods, um, Learn, which is a low-fat uh, 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 focused diet. Ornish, which is again fo focusing on lowering fat um, to the extent possible and replacing that with with vegetables and um, and fruits uh, for the most part. But really focusing again on the fat in in favor of more healthy protein and fruits and vegetables. And then finally, um, uh, the Atkins diet, which is you know, really focusing on minimizing carbohydrates to the greatest extent possible and has really no limitation on um, uh, fat consumption by comparison. Um, and yet you can see that all of the diets 
produce weight loss. One of the things about um, dietary weight loss, though, and I wouldn't, again, um, take uh, uh, read much into the relative difference with respect to the Atkins diet on this plot because none of the diets produced all that much weight loss, and you're only talking about a couple of pounds of difference. But the, the, the um, take-home uh, for diets is that all diets work. All diets plateau at a certain point, so you can see all these curves stop producing any um, additional weight loss, even though the people were still on the diet. And that's because the body has a lot of um, mechanisms that fight back against further weight loss when we continue to, to deprive our bodies of calories. Um, and so no diet will produce weight loss all the way until your target weight necessarily. It all depends on your body's physiology. And then finally, when the people went off the diets, they all gained the weight back within six weeks. And so um, uh, these are the fundamental hallmark features of, of um, diet-induced weight loss. On the other hand, if you think about calorie restriction, not just for for weight, but for lifespan and more importantly, health span, i.e. the number of years we live in our lives before we have the first manifestation of life-shortening chronic disease, calorie restriction has consistently been shown to increase lifespan. And so you can see here, depending on the degree of calorie restriction, um, on the um, on the left hand side, um, we're showing um, uh, data uh, from calorie restricted mice, and on the right hand side, um, the the graphic has switched uh, that to say, well, what would that be if an individual were to in, uh, undergo that degree of chronic calorie restriction? Um, uh, you know, as a person. And you can see that, you know, you're talking even with 25% reduction in calories per day chronically, um, a, a major change in, in the 50th percentile of mortality for people in terms of their overall lifespan. And so people who might live to be 79 in this graphical extrapolation are living to nearly 100 um, uh, because they're um, reducing 25% of calories from that that's necessary uh, necessary to keep weight neutrality under normal conditions. Um, and so um, the impact of calorie restriction um, really is is profound. And we see it from fruit flies and um, roundworms all the way to people. And um, it's not just lifespan, but it's also uh, health span. And we can talk about this maybe in the question and answer afterward. But here's an example of two um, uh, monkeys that are siblings um, uh, raised in separate cohorts, one um, that is um, eating an ad lib diet, able to have as much food as it wants um, without having to have any restrictions placed, and um, the sibling um, with a 25% um, a, a uh, calorie restriction in place, and you can see clearly that that you know one of these um, of these uh, macaques, um, rhesus macaques, is looking much younger, more vibrant, alert skin tone, everything looks like an animal much younger than stated age, whereas the sibling who doesn't have that dietary restriction uh, protocol in place ages in a manner that's much more com commensurate with the chronological age. And so, um, you know, this is a really intriguing area of biology, and we're doing a lot to try to understand the chemical mediators that are involved in uh, uh, regulating the switches that either protect or hasten um, metabolic aging and health span in the context of how much food we eat in our lives. Um, people have taken this idea of calorie restriction one step further and have thought about fasting as a potential way to recapture some of the benefits of calorie restriction overall without 
reducing the overall consumption of calories. And so there are a couple of different ways to do this. In fact, there are many. You can you can reduce um, uh, uh, periods of time when you eat um, by doing various fasting protocols. Um, you can also restrict um, the amount of time in every day that you're allowing yourself to eat. So the periods of time between meals and snacks is extended um, uh, from what we might think of as normally grazing style ad lib uh, kind of access to and consumption of food. And um, uh, this um, uh, image is, is meant to show that um, in many ways, our bodies work on a, a set of biological clocks. And those biological clocks are entrained by both light and they're also entrained by our behaviors, including when and how much we eat. And um, th- these clocks are also evolutionarily conserved because um, uh, mammals and um, their predecessors have evolved on Earth with a 24-hour light-dark cycle um, in place, um, you know, for long enough uh, that we've been able to adapt to that very um, uh, fundamental aspect of life on Earth. And so we have a central clock located in the brain that governs a lot of our diurnal activities, hormonal functions, um, uh, sleep-wake, as well as um, uh, other um, uh, physiological parameters. And then we have clocks in all peripheral um, organs as well that entrain not only to that central clock, but also to um, our nutritional um, uh, 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 intake, as well as many other behavioral factors. And so... um, in light of this um, coincident integration of our nutritional habits and our clocks, um, people have um, tried to restrict our um, time when we eat to better match our own biological clock's preferred entrainment cycle. And when we do that, we see that there are a lot of health benefits that people can get. And this this um, uh, uh, cartoon just illustrates a number of those across many parameters. And um, it would take too much time to go into all of the individual ones. But the effects are quite pervasive. And this is a growing area of research that many people are, are getting into. And, um, and uh, one of the things that people have done to even take this idea of time-restricted feeding and fasting one step further is to look at one of the most hallmark um, uh, metabolic shifts that takes place when we fast, and that is the production of something called ketone bodies by the liver as a source of fuel for the brain. So when individuals, for example, run marathons, um, the reason that they, they load up with carbohydrates is so that um, they, have, they can go as long as possible um, by allowing the liver to generate glucose from the glycogen that it deposits as a function of all that carbohydrate consumption the day before. And the intent is to have glucose be produced by the liver for long enough to allow for the fat tissue in our bodies to mobilize fat and and, um, send that fat to the liver for the liver to then turn that fat into glucose. And so you have a continuous supply of glucose and the liver also makes something called ketone bodies from that fat that go to the brain specifically and allow us to rem- remain alert, aware, and on top of things, even though we, have, we haven't we have eaten since the night before and we're in the middle of running a marathon. But if people don't manage um, the carbohydrate consumption correctly, um, and if they are devoid of um, sufficient glycogen to bridge until the fat reserves from the fat go to the liver and the liver can make ketone bodies with them, you will have a fuel gap. And if you are unable to make ketone bodies for your brain before the glucose supply runs out, then you hit the wall 
And I think you may, many of you may have seen images of people who do that around mile 20 or 21. Um, and that's, you know, shows how vulnerable we are in the brain to um, the need for a constant supply of fuel. And ketone body production by the liver is that evolutionarily conserved source of fuel that keeps us alert and aware when we, it's been a long time since our last meal. So what we've learned is that carbohydrates and their consumption is what shuts off the, ge- the, the generation of ketone bodies um, because it's associated with the production of insulin. It means that we've now eaten a meal and all of our physiology goes to the fed state again. It resets like a typewriter back to you know the beginning. Uh, and so um, by learning this, we've been able to harness specific diets, which we now call ketogenic diets, to by limiting the amount of carbohydrates in favor of protein and fat, allow us to enter a state of mild ketosis, even though we're not fasting specifically to do so. And um, what we found is that if we can limit um, uh, the ketosis and keep it in a very mild state, There are a lot of health benefits that come from that as well because we are evolutionarily very, very conserved to rely on ketones because it is our hormonally driven indicator of a prolonged fast. And we can mimic that by putting ourselves on a specific diet. All right, so this is just a quick um, overview of the ketogenic diet. I think I already went over this, but normally um, when we fast, Uh, fats are liberated from our fat tissue. That's one of the reasons why we have fat is to actually provide a fuel source when we're fasting. Those fats go to the liver. The liver turns the fat into a number of different things, including um, uh, glucose for itself, fat um, to send to the heart and other muscles for fuel, and ketone bodies, which primarily, as I said, go to the brain. We can recapitulate that by just eliminating or lowering the amount of carbohydrates that we consume sufficiently to reduce insulin levels, And by doing that, fool the body into thinking we're fasting in a manner of speaking and liberate this ketogenic um, uh, cycle um, uh, purposefully. And we can also, by the way, engage in the same kind of thing by consuming ketones. And that's another area of precision medicine and nutrition that you are going to see coming out over the next few years. Um, And that is supplemental um, uh, nutraceuticals that are designed to provide ketones um, so that we can get that increased um, uh, ketogenic bump without having to substantially alter our diets at all. Now, the science in that area is really um, new, but that's one direction where many researchers are trying to take it. Um, And so the ketogenic diet is, again, like um, time-restricted feeding associated with a number of different health benefits. And the ones that are shown in dark are the ones that have a a lot of of, uh, evidence to back them up, both in animal models as well as in people. And the other areas that are more gray are a little bit less well-recognized as being bona fide benefits of the ketogenic diet, but are emerging areas that we think are also relevant to uh, what you might be able to expect um, in, in, in response to this diet. And we're trying to find out mechanistically how all of these health benefits work. And that's a very vibrant area of research right now in nutritional physiology. Um, okay, so, um, so even more recently, this again is just a couple of weeks old, and this is from another colleague of, of ours who we work with um, named Peter Turnbaugh. And his lab um, has, has uh, uh, done a study showing that not only does ketogenic diet produce physiological effects, um, that have um, you know uh, uh, contributions to metabolic health, but they also produce immunologic effects. And uh, immunological aging is another aspect of um, health span that we would like to intervene in. 
And so they looked at people on a ketogenic diet, and what they found was that the levels in the gut lining, as well as in the blood, of a cell type, a T cell type, called TH17 cell, which is elevated in individuals with cardiometabolic risk and in comparisons of people with diabetes versus no diabetes, goes down in response to consumption of a diet that is ketogenic in nature. And in their study, they showed that one of the mediators of that relationship between ketogenic diet and immunological improvement was a change in the nature of the microbiome. And so this is another area, I think now, um, uh, really the frontier area of, um, of uh, precision nutrition um, that is, is really coming to the fore, and that is the microbiome. And so um, uh, I think, you know, all of you have probably heard one way or another about probiotics, the microbiome, metagenomics, and, um, and its impact on cardiometabolic health. And we're going to spend just a few minutes talking about this. Okay, so um, uh, just briefly, um, the um, microbiome represents all of the bacteria um, that live in and on our bodies, and in particular, the gut micro microbiota uh, represents the bacterial species that colonize our intestinal tracts, um, and there's uh, upper gastrointestinal and lower gastrointestinal uh, microbiota, and the, the intestinal microbiota has now, over the last two decades, been shown to have a tremendous impact on our, our, our metabolic health and um, health span. Two things that are fundamental for you to know happen in the context of aging and metabolic disease versus health to the microbiome. One is that the microbiome and its c composition changes from birth until adulthood and then in, in, in the later phases of life in the last quarter of our lives, again, changes. And the second thing is that in response to advancing age, and accelerated in response to, for example, changes in diet and in the context of obesity, is a shift not only in the composition of the microbiome, but a narrowing of the diversity of the microbiome or the richness of the number of different species that are normally present in one's microbiome. And so it's this lack of diversity or narrowing to fewer enriched species that comprise one's microbiome that we think is associated with individual vulnerabilities to disease risk. And this is just another graphical representation of this, looking at the level of individual species. And you can see that um, you know, before adulthood, um, in response to what would be called a healthy diet, in response to a, a high-calorie diet or um, diet-induced obesity, and then in late life, there are profound changes in the composition. And here we're only looking at four or five of, of the constituent species that make up our microbiomes in response to these, these dietary changes as well as um, uh, different phases of our, of our lifespan. Um, and we are now very focused on understanding not only these individual species, but their interactions with one another and their impacts on our host physiology in determining how the microbiome impacts um, a health and disease risk and how we might adequately intervene to control the shape and, and structure of the microbiome for health benefit. 
Um, and again, uh, this is probably something that you may be somewhat aware of, but there's this term called dysbiosis, which says that there's been an alteration either because of long-term antibiotic use, um, adherence to a poor processed diet, um, sedentary lifestyle, toxic or, 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 or other um, uh, uh, unhealthy environmental exposures that shifts the balance of the microbiome. And that shifted balance, that alteration in microbial composition in our guts places us at risk for a number of uh, uh, diseases across a wide spectrum. Another factor that I think is really coming to the fore with respect to microbiome research is that globalization is impacting our microbiota. And and so you can see that individuals living in Asian countries have, uh, on average, richer microbiota than people living in the United States do. And if you track immigration of people from Asian countries, just as as an example, um, to the United States, and then look over generations, and with um, time present in this country, over one's lifespan, the microbiota drops in association with the exposure to the United States environment. And so traditionally, that would have been thought to have been um, an increased reliance on processed foods in the United States versus, you know, less so in Asia. But in the last 10, 15 years, even Asia has had a huge proliferation of processed food consumption and microbiome diversity in Asian individuals, even living in Asia, has dropped over time as well. So now we're starting to see this lack of diversity in the microbiome affecting people worldwide. And I think the coolest thing um, that gives us hope that intervening in the microbiome could be sufficient to impact health and disease risk comes from the fecal transplant studies that individuals like Dr. Turnbaugh's lab, and now we're doing these here at UCSF as well, have shown. So in in the graphs that I'm, I'm showing you here, these are transplants done from two monozygotic twins, okay? One twin that was obese and the other twin, which was relatively lean. And that can happen for many reasons. Twins that that are separated after birth, raised in different households, different environments, different habits, different dietary dietary patterns over their lifespans. One may develop obesity, the other not. And there there were enough donors that this study group got in contact with that they could get uh, microbiomes from those people through stool samples. And then they could take just the microbes themselves purified put them into the guts um, through the, the, the uh, stomachs of mice, and they could show that these previously germ-free mice were rendered with microbiomes that mirrored those of the donors they got the bugs from. And then, if you track those animals, you could see that they gained increased weight if they got a microbiome from a human being with increased weight. And they gained increased body fat mass if they got microbiomes from people with increased body weight. And in this case, we know that the, that the donor's own genetics had nothing to do with why that was so because the donors were twins and they were identically, genetically identical. The only things that, that were different about them, we presume, were in the microbiomes themselves, the bugs. And so the, the, the specific species of, of microbes that these mice got was sufficient to change that mouse's physiology. That's, that's very profound, and I think we've spent the last decade plus now trying to build on those findings in terms of interventions that are applicable to humans. Um, and this brings us to, um, I think, the most um, application-oriented place that we are right now in this, in this arena, and that is to use multiple streams 
of data acquisition. So this is the classic study from the group at the Weizmann Institute that was published in Cell, where they took individuals, large number of individuals, they asked them to consume different types of foods, okay? And what they found was, for example, that whereas most people, if they consumed a slice of white bread, would have a rise in their blood sugar that was more so than if they consumed the same amount of food, but in the context of, uh, for example, you know, whole grain oatmeal, some people didn't have any rise in blood sugar when they consumed white bread. And some people had a massive spike of blood sugar when they consumed the oatmeal. Furthermore, they looked at other kinds of foods that are not normally associated with a rise in blood sugar in, in, in large population-based studies, for example, tomato. And they found that some people had massive rise um, uh, in blood sugar whenever they ate a tomato. And the reason that they knew that is because they had a monitor continuously tracking their blood glucose. And so now with external um, devices that can integrate with our, our nutritional habits, we may be able to get a lot more information about changes in temperature, changes in glucose, sodium, blood pressure, weight, than we ever would, be, would have been able to get before. And we can integrate those streams of data with our nutrition and also with our microbiomes, um, they, um, they were able to, um, to do this very thing and they were able to, from this approach, find microbiome signatures that could predict people's glycemic response to individual foods. And that really represents where we want to be. Because if we can find out at a given individual's predilection via their microbiomes and then develop blood-based biomarker strategies that connect to the composition of that microbiome and then give instructive advice as to how that person could alter their diet, take a specific probiotic or another intervention that could reconstruct the shape of their microbiomes to better align with a more healthful response to food, we would really have something. And this is the, um, the, this is the, 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 the present, but more so really the future of where we want to go with precision nutrition. Um, and so finally now, circling all the way back to the beginning of the talk and Wonder Bread and the low-fat diet, we have really made a lot of advancements because now we can talk about a more nuanced, more precise view of dietary fats than we had in the 80s by a, a large margin. And so if you look at the American Heart Association's own materials, they show you a, 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 you know, a really nice description of good fats. And so we can talk about omega-3 fatty acids. We can talk about getting those omega-3s from different kinds of sources, um, whether they're fish-related um, uh, omega-3s or whether they're omega-3s that we get from vegetable-related sources. We can talk about nuts and um, uh, legumes and other sources of, of fat that are much better than traditional vegetable-related oils. And then, of course, we can talk about olive oils um, and monounsaturated fats. Uh, versus saturated fats and polyunsaturated fats and dissect the specific health and disease-related parameters that these individual lipid species in our diets can modulate. And then we can use that information to um, uh, develop interventions. And so next. So this, uh, this study is from last year in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and it shows that, that 
Nutrition can be drugged. It's druggable. A nutraceutical can be developed that can actually limit one's um, a risk of developing heart disease. So this is a, a drug which now is available um, uh, as a branded product called Vasipa, um, which is um, uh, icosapent ethyl, which is uh, also known as EPA, one of the um, nutritional um, omega-3 fatty acids that's found in deep sea fish, also present in maternal milk. Um, that when turned into a pill, purified and given to people at a specific dose over time had a tremendous impact on people who had previously high um, levels of blood fat, triglycerides, and um, uh, excess cardiovascular risk. It could serve to mitigate uh, uh, future events, cardiac events in those people um, simply by taking what's otherwise a, a, a component of a healthy diet in isolation as a supplement. And, um, and if you go further, um, you can see that another manifestation of this very thing is um, the Mediterranean diet. So the Mediterranean diet has sort of just flipped the, the, um, the enrichment of various elements of the diet to favor monounsaturated fats in the form of nuts um, and legumes, as well as um, uh, whole grain-related um, uh, carbohydrates, but also an overt reliance on olive oil, which is um, a rich in oleic acid, which is a monounsaturated fatty acid, very much associated with cardiometabolic health and anti-inflammatory properties, even in animal models. And so, um, again, um, for the last slide, you can see how you can turn this into um, a, a bona fide uh, randomized control trial. And so this is um, uh, the Predimed study, and this is a primary prevention study. So these are people who've never had uh, a, a coronary artery disease event um, or equivalent event, and they're looking at a composite of cardiometabolic um, uh, uh, risk for these individuals via event rates. And in the top um, uh, uh, line, you can see the rate of these events over time, five years in the study for the control group who had no dietary intervention. And you can see that, um, that people who had uh, a, a greater reliance on um, nuts and, um, and um, legumes in the context of a Mediterranean diet had a much lower event rate for these same cardio, uh, cardiometabolic uh, uh, acute events. And that could be mimicked by taking the diet that people are on and adding a specific amount of extra virgin olive oil to the diet per day. And so again, it's harnessing um, nutritional information to create uh, a nutraceutical uh, intervention that can limit someone's uh, a likelihood of, of having a coronary event. Now, again, there's caveats here because this study was done in a large population. And as you remember from the beginning of the talk, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the human population. And so it's quite possible that there are hyper-responders and relative non-responders, and we haven't done enough research to know how to distinguish uh, those folks from one another. But the idea here is that with increased reliance on genetic information, multiple streams of data that can be um, obtained from biomarker-based uh, uh, assessments, transcriptomic analysis of individual cells, for example, from people's blood, um, as well as um, wearable devices, 
we'll be able to get the kind of precise information that we can link to interventions to ultimately find out exactly what any of us should be eating um, uh, with the intention of staving off specific diseases that we might be at high genetic predisposition for um, to the greatest degree possible. And that's really the goal. Um, and if we do that, then we'll be able to create the, the, the proper health span increase that we want with a minimal number of non-responders who don't seem to derive benefit from whatever we're trying to do for them. So with that, I'll stop. Thank you. And I think, you know, UCSF really is one of the few places in the country, if not the world, that has the breadth of talent to really explore in all of these different areas. And I tried to sprinkle um, throughout the talk multiple studies that really centrally involve UCSF researchers, um, uh, showing you that we're actually really deeply engaged in this kind of work, not just um, trying to harness it um, to show patients, but actually doing the basic science uh, that underlies it as well. So thank you very much, and I'm happy to take any questions if there's time. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Koliwa. That was uh, fantastic. And uh, I know I'm almost positive it got everybody thinking because uh, this is like something, it's so tangible. It's our diet. It's what we do every day, you know, throughout the day. So um, uh, some great questions, um, which I will try and convey to you. So. Tanya Spiritos says the um, POMC mutation that causes the severe obesity, the single gene mutation. Um, can you do CRISPR and replace that appetite break? Great question. That is an amazingly insightful question. Amazingly insightful. And I will tell you that it's so insightful that uh, scientists have tried to do the, that exact same question, that exact same intervention. And, and um, we haven't done it in human beings yet. Um, and and it, there are many ethical reasons why we wouldn't move to that necessarily yet. Although, you know, the, the most ethical um, uh, CRISPR-based intervention we can come up with would be to reverse a disease that's otherwise completely untreatable. Um, but there's another single gene defect in the same pathway as POMC. Um, it, in fact, is a receptor that listens to the neurons that express POMC, and that receptor is called the melanocortin-4 receptor, or MC4. And it's the MC4 receptor, MC4R, that when mutated causes a very similar picture um, as what I showed for POMC. And um, two investigators um, uh, from UCSF, in fact, Christian Vase's lab, um, uh, working with two other labs, actually, at, at Mission Bay, um, did use CRISPR to correct the haploinsufficiency, meaning one of the alleles giving it back again and getting the person to getting the mouse in this case to re-express uh, MC4R. And that CRISPR-based strategy was sufficient to completely ameliorate the obesity phenotype, which otherwise was transmitting from generation to generation in this um, inbred uh, uh, mouse colony. And they completely cured it for that for that individual mouse, and also for the progeny that came from that mouse in perpetuity after that. So uh, the answer to your question is yes. CRISPR is precisely the type of strategy that might be able to to fix that uh, kind of monogenic form of obesity in an individual. Wow, awesome. Um, Tanya also asks um, polycystic ovary syndrome. So if if those patients are obese, they typically start metformin before trying to induce ovulation. 
Um, what if your normal weight with PCOS and anovulation? Do you start metformin um, similarly, or do you skip that? Kind of interesting. That's, That's a great question. Reason. So the, the, the yeah, the question has to do with um, the role of metformin and the the contributing factors to um, anovulatory cycles in PCOS. So PCOS is a specific type of um, of fertility-associated syndrome that um, is linked to two things. One is hyperandrogenism, excess amount of testosterone and, and, and uh, so-called male hormones in a female um, genetically. Um, and also um, an increase in insulin resistance. And both of these factors play a role in the association between PCOS and um, uh inappropriate or absent menstrual cycles. And so uh, uh, women with PCOS traditionally take uh, birth control pills to try to reestablish cycles. They take um, a, uh, sometimes a, a drug called spironolactone that blocks um, uh, some of this androgenic effects um, and promotes um, uh, more estrogen-like um, features and re- helps reestablish cycles. And sometimes the birth control pill has a spironolactone-like effect Um, that's specifically chosen. And then finally, they go on metformin. So what does metformin do? Well, metformin, I showed um, imagery of the liver. Metformin specifically reestablishes the liver's responsiveness to insulin. And so it limits the extent to which the liver kicks out glucose when it should not be doing so. And um, metformin also has a number of other pleiotropic effects. But we do think that individuals who are having features of the metabolic syndrome, altered blood uh, 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 fat content or triglyceride, obesity, slight hyperglycemia or elevated blood sugar, um, high blood pressure and a family history of diabetes, their PCOS might be really benefited by putting them on metformin. If an individual has none of those features, and it only has um, uh, uh, the, the, the problem with, um, with menstrual cycles and maybe some acne to go along with it, they, they may not be as, as well benefited by metformin. We oftentimes try metformin on those individuals anyways, but those are individuals who I might con- not continue on metformin if I didn't see a beneficial effect right away. On the other hand, whether you're talking about an adolescent boy or girl, uh, you might put somebody with all the features of prediabetes on metformin because it, we know that it can do a lot to stave off the development of diabetes along with diet and exercise for both boys and girls. And so in that context, metformin is, is quite useful. And so um, I think your point is, 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 is uh, well taken. Um, we need to be a little bit more nuanced um, with respect to how we treat diseases like PCOS. I will say, though, that PCOS is um, a unique condition because unlike most men, women see doctors, right? Women see doctors when they're young um, because of many reasons. They go to see doctors um, uh, for sometimes dermatologic issues more frequently than boys do. They go and see doctors for um, issues related to puberty and menstrual um, uh, cycles and their development in ways that are probably more frequent oftentimes than boys do. And they continue to see doctors if for no other reason than for pap smears and, um, and, uh, uh, female fertility-related um, uh, uh, 
well visits. And many men don't go and see a doctor until they have symptoms relevant to a chronic adult disease for the first time after their last physical for um, school sports, for example. And um, PCOS is, is an indication in many cases, that somebody is at increased risk for developing type 2 diabetes and can can lead a woman to get intervention that will not only help the periods, but also limit the likelihood that she gets diabetes sooner versus later. Men oftentimes don't have that kind of check-in um, for another reason that gets them to medical attention. And so I think PCOS is a very important disease with that in mind as well. Wow, fascinating, fascinating. Hmm. So you're saying that Guys shouldn't just ignore everything and should see the doctor occasionally. I think that's probably a good idea. I think that's probably a good idea. Uh, the, 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 yes, exactly. Uh, and we don't have enough reasons uh, that force us to go see doctors. And maybe we, I wish we had a few more of those. But um, uh, in, in absence of that, I think, yes, you're right. We need to take it upon ourselves. Great, great. Um, so the ketogenic diet, um, what are the... Uh, what are the risks of that? So the effect on the kidneys or, you know, other things that can, that sort of may balance out benefits in, in lipid profiles and in weight and things like that. Any, any insight? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, so I, I will note that um, most, if not actually almost all of the most uh, uh, revealing studies that show the cardiometabolic benefits of ketogenic diet have been done on obese individuals. So when you put an obese individual, someone with a BMI above 30, and even though I said there's all this heterogeneity, the studies haven't taken that heterogeneity into account, and we'll get to that in a second. If you take BMI, uh, people with BMI over 30, put them on a ketogenic diet, you, see, you tend to see profound weight loss um, with, with ketogenic diet in part because ketogenic diet does induce some weight loss, but in part because most diets induce the greatest amount of weight loss in the people with the highest BMI. So if you pre-select people with high BMI to put on um, these diets in the context of these studies, you'll see a lot of weight loss. And in the context of that weight loss, you see uh, a, a lot of cardiometabolic benefits. We're now working to, to, to try to make sure that we're correct about ascribing those benefits specifically to the ketosis and not um, necessarily to the associated weight loss per se. Um, and, and several studies have, have done that. But there are other people now getting back to the heterogeneity who have all of the risk factors for diabetes uh, and metabolic syndrome, but they are not necessarily obese. South Asians, for example, um, other East Asian populations, Middle Easterners, Native Americans, several Hispanic subgroups develop type 2 diabetes and cardio, cardiovascular disease at a lower BMI than the general population. Putting individuals like that on a ketogenic diet that's very strict may cause a dangerous amount of weight loss. And, and given that some of these individuals may not be obese or anything close to it by classical definitions in the first place, you may not want to put them in such negative energy balance um, uh, given their, their weight going in. So um, we don't know the impact of ketogenic diet across diverse populations in this kind of much more granular way. And that's something that I think a lot of people are now really focusing on and wanting to get answers to. Um, so um, the other thing you, you, you asked about was risks. And certainly, I think there are a few risks. Um, if, you, if you 
overdo it and create substantial ketosis, you can actually alter physiological function. People who don't make insulin, um, those people who have the other type of diabetes that is less common than type 2 called type 1 diabetes, those individuals, if they don't take their insulin on a regular basis, will um, develop what we call diabetic ketoacidosis. And that's because their ketone uh, body levels go up tremendously high. It affects the blood pH and actually alters physiological function more broadly, including um, their ability to retain consciousness. And these people can go into coma if that condition lasts for too long. And so in lean individuals, um, you certainly don't want to overdo the level of ketosis that you produce. Um, because all of these complications may be relevant to those individuals as well. And then finally, you brought up the, uh, the issue of kidney disease. Certainly, um, going into steep ketosis for a long period of time is a little bit harder on the kidneys um, than we would like it to be. And I think hydration um, is very important for people who are, who are attempting a ketogenic diet. And check in with your physician about your kidney function to make sure about the antecedent risks before you start it, especially given what your age may be at the time, is a probably very wise thing to do. And I would recommend it. Got it. Great, great. That was from uh, Kate Simmons, that question. Um, so Joanne Whitney asked us, uh, what are the uh, measurable endpoints of ketogenic diet microbiome change in terms of diabetes? Um, does it decrease med use? Does it decrease insulin resistance? Like what are the actual measured impacts? Yeah. Uh, so um, diet associated changes to the microbiome. Um, the, the way the studies have been done is kind of the reverse, which is to say we give medications that we know improve insulin um, resistance or um, lower blood sugar um, in a in variety of ways and look at what that does to the microbiome or put people on diets that we think are cardiometabolically healthy and in association with um, with the improvements in those cardiometabolic parameters, we look at what that, that dietary intervention does to the microbiome. In terms of flipping it in the way you ask the question and say, well, when you have an unhealthy diet or you age in the context of your genetic risk factors and you start developing prediabetes and head towards diabetes, how do changes in the microbiome facilitate that unhealthy change that goes on in the context of age. There are many studies out there looking at that, and the jury is completely still out. There is one um, uh, set of, of um, uh, studies that I think has been winning out thus far, though. Maybe two ideas that are competing. One is that as the microbiome shifts becomes less diverse, and certain species start dominating in the overall composition. Those species produce specific metabolites through the way those bacterial species um, uh, work on the foods that we eat. And those metabolites that they produce, for example, certain short-chain fatty acids, they can get across the intestinal barrier into our bloodstream, and they exert effects that impact um, inflammation in the body and vis-a-vis inflammation, insulin resistance, putting a more uh, a greater burden on the pancreas and ultimately leading to uh, its uh, impairment and, and then diabetes. So the second um, uh, area is that 
um, some of the bacterial species produce bacterial factors, um, toxins. Um, for example, one called lipo, uh, lipopolysaccharide or LPS, that in the context of advancing age and unhealthy diet can, through what we are now sort of loosely terming, t- terming leaky gut, can get into the circulation across the intestinal barrier, and those toxins mediate a chronic inflammatory state, and that inflammation fuels insulin resistance and then subsequent diabetes. And so we're kind of trying to work on what is the mediator molecule that is the go-between connecting the changes we make in our diet to the physiological alterations we see in our in ourselves vis-a-vis the microbiome. And um, can we uh, block those molecules and arrest that process even though the microbiome changes its nature, its impact on our physiology could be halted if we knew how to do that. Great. Um, so uh, actually, do you take probiotics? <laughs> Should we all be taking them? Ah, uh, good question. Um, I, I don't take probiotics, but I, I do try to really nowadays look, and we're doing this more as a family, of course, and there's lots of factors associated with trying to get your whole family to do something. But um, we're trying to really focus on the minimally processed carbohydrates. We're trying to focus on minimally, minimally processed, unprocessed, completely unprocessed meats, um, limiting the consumption of red meat, and um, a greater reliance on raw um, nuts and um, uh, increased vegetables in the diet. I think that that those dietary changes have been studied with respect to what they do to your own microbiome, that it's almost, you know, although it's one, one level removed, it's almost like a probiotic because you're making a shift that many studies have defined um, at the species level and you're doing the same kind of infer- inter- intervention that should reliably produce a similar shift in you. And that's you know, on par with taking a, a probiotic. The problem with probiotics is that, um, so for example, I showed you that, that, um, that, that uh, uh, microbiota transplant into mouse. So that mouse was, was raised in a germ-free environment for multiple generations so that that mouse was as a pup born without any intestinal microbiome. And so when you put a microbiome into it, it will take because there's nothing that it has to compete against in order to establish firm footing in the, in the intestinal mucosa um, uh, for life. It, doing the same thing in human is much more difficult because you'd have to give people antibiotics or something to clean out their microbiome. That may have completely unwanted side effects and other complications associated with it. Furthermore, you're almost never able to really get rid of their microbiome anyways because they're just so firmly entrenched from birth until the time you try the intervention that you can't. And so when you do the the, the um, uh, microbiota transplantation into people, which we do for certain um, inflammatory diseases now, increasingly we do um, in the context of, of certain bacterial nosocomial infections that we're trying to overcome, um, you don't get a, a real, a really solid and, and durable take. The 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 in, original endogenous microbiome once again flourishes and outcompetes the transplant um, in many individuals. And same thing is true with, with probiotics, in that um, we can't really guarantee how that probiotic is shaping the the microbiome of the person taking it in everybody because people are so heterogeneous and their microbiome signatures are so different from person to person at the outset. And since we don't have an easy way to test 
one's microbial composition before they take the probiotic and after, we don't really have a good way to know that. There are companies like Ubiome and others that are trying to get at this, um, but it's early days, I think, in, in, in that area for um, very concrete guidance. So unfortunately, to summarize, healthy nutritional lifestyle change is way more important than a simple pill. At this point, I think that is absolutely correct. And I think we're, we're much closer to making uh, more precise recommendations um, about how people might construct the composition of their diets than we are in developing pills that can bypass that and for way, way further along than we are in deciding who those pills should be given to to identify people who are maximally responsive versus non-responsive. Wow, great. Um, let's see. On the slideshow showing where fat was stored in a white versus Hispanic versus Asian woman with similar BMIs, looked like the uh, white woman was 37 and the other two were 58 and 59 years old, which seems pretty different. Uh, could that have been the differentiating, differentiating factor? Well, wow, that was pretty uh, insightful to pick that up. Yeah. Yeah, that was a, th- th- so that, that, that's a great point. Um, the images that I showed were selected because the BMIs were so similar, just for pictorial clarity. But in, in our overall cohort, we've matched on age. So even though there are people who are younger and people who are older, on average, um, all the individuals in the studies that we do are, are are matched for age. So in aggregate, when we take cohorts of people who are Hispanic, uh, Caucasian, or Chinese, we guarantee that the ages are matched on because otherwise, you're right, you wouldn't be able to make uh, easy comparisons for um, for the purpose of, uh, you know, doing real, um, uh, real scientific uh, comparative uh, research. Sure. So that, that question was from Hannah, who also says that... Uh, asks another insightful question. The the ketogenic diet and the Mediterranean diet seem pretty different. Um, Is it likely that the people for whom one is helpful wouldn't find the other helpful? Or is is there a group that, you know, is responsive to one versus the other and it's worth trying both to see which is most helpful for you? Yep. I, I, so these are great questions. And, and, you know, we really don't know the answers, although there's every reason to suspect that, that such a thing could be true, that there's, there are people who are maximally suited for responsiveness to the Mediterranean diet and other people who are going to respond very easily to even minimally um, ketogenic diet and, and, and perhaps, you know, um, uh, not the other. Um, I will say, though, that um, a couple of things are, are relatively common for humans overall. One is that all, all people do enter into ketosis. If you fast for a substantial amount of time, we all generate ketone bodies. So that's a physiology that is present in, in essentially all of us, unless you have a specific genetic mutation uh, uh, that, that prevents that, that, that from happening very aggressively, and that's very rare. Um, but most people will generate ketones, and so you can play on that, that mammalian physiology dietarily and get at least some benefit for just about everybody. The question is whether you can get a lot of benefit and it's clinically relevant for that person. Um, The Mediterranean diet, on the other hand, um, you know, uh, again, it it, it plays on um, multiple factors. We don't really know what the the specific only major factor that determines the beneficial effects of that diet because you're doing lots of things in the Mediterranean diet. But if you just stick to the monounsaturated fat consumption vis-a-vis olive oil, Monounsaturated fats exert some specific um, uh, healthy effects on cells 
Uh, and that's true whether you give it to, you know, uh, a, a worm or a, or a mouse or a, or a monkey or a, or a person. So it's, it's exceptionally basic and fundamental in terms of its response. And so, um, again, we don't know whether someone might be better off on a different diet yet. Those kind of studies are being done now. And they need to be done. Um, but I think that everyone can get some modicum of benefit from a, a Mediterranean diet. I think the more fundamental point I would make, though, is that... Um, if you look at, at, that, at that graph I showed from the paper in 2009 comparing multiple diets for weight loss, one of the things about, about these diets, especially the ones with, with large followings, is that the acute phase, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, for example, where the diets are really different from one another, if you take those acute phases and throw them out and just look at the maintenance, so-called maintenance phase, a lot of these diets are quite similar once you reach the maintenance phase. And that has to do with palatability over the long term, you know, the ability of people to stay on the diet and really you know, take it to heart versus what's actually sustainable um, physiologically over the long haul. Maybe you need to be in ketosis, steep ketosis for only a couple of weeks and then you know, minimal amount of ketosis to maintain that is more than enough. Um, and so if you look at that, those factors, and you say, well, wow, you know, the Zone diet, the Atkins diet, the South Beach diet, a lot of these diets two months in look pretty similar. I mean, there's no diet that's saying don't eat vegetables. Um, so, you know, there, there, there's lots of similarities. And I, I think, you know, patients and, 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 and people in general should um, see past the acute phase that is what leads the book to have the title it has and look at the, at the maintenance phase and ask how similar these diets are to one another and then maybe aspire to those common principles because those principles in books oftentimes really mirror like American Diabetes Association or American Heart Association recommendations relatively closely. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.